that. Let's go. Um, I want to go into the 25th lesson tonight with the disclaimer that the subtitle, Marriage, is a little bit of a deceptive subtitle. Uh, the reason I do this is because a lot of people are following along in this series or will someday follow along in this series. And Ephesians 5 is famously Paul's dealing with marriage. However, it's kind of not what people think it is. People often assume that Paul deals with husbands and wives and how their marriages ought to look in Ephesians 5, but he really doesn't. We're going to get to the bottom of that tonight, but as a, just a note up front, Ephesians chapter 5, the, the, the segment in question tonight, Paul is going to use marriage as an allegory for Christ and his church, and he's going to give some instructions to women. He's going to give some instructions to men but he's really trying to show you the love that Christ has for his church. So if anything, when we say marriage, what we should be pointing out is that it's the marriage as an illustration, as an allegory, as a metaphor between our heavenly husband and the bride. What revelation will literally call the bride when you get to the end of the New Testament? Do you want to see the lamb's bride? And he shows John the new Jerusalem. So mixed metaphors for sure. The bride the lamb, lambs don't have brides, brides aren't cities. So there's all kinds of metaphors all over the place in regard to marriage. So it's not unusual then that Paul would use husbands and wives to illustrate Christ and his church. So that's all I'll say about that, sort of that dichotomy between actual marriage and the spiritual marriage. We'll try to bring those together instead of uh, pushing them apart as we go through this. This is also one of those moments in Ephesians that is highly controversial, um, simply because we live in a society where roles are always being redefined based upon culture and based upon what's going on in the world. People are redefining what marriage looks like. They're redefining what the role is of a wife and what is the role of a husband and what is the role of a woman and the role of a man. And, and um, the Bible does speak to issues like this, but I think we weaken the scriptures when we think that they are written to address these things. The scriptures... Um, at their best point us to Jesus as the centerpiece of the gospel. There are things the scriptures address that we can pay attention to, but there are also reasons why we take umbrage. And before we're done tonight, I'm setting all of this up with these thoughts. Before we're done tonight, we'll find that taking umbrage with scripture is okay. And I'll show you why, because we're going to stumble across some in this that you need to take umbrage with. And they're right there in the text. Um, so with that said, let's read uh, the first two verses of our lesson. Is, one of them is actually the last verse of last week. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. If you'll recall, we closed last week with 21, which, so it's why it's lowercase. We're actually in the middle of a sentence. And then there's a period at the end of 21 and a new verse in 22. But I want to put them together for a couple of reasons. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I put these together. Reason number one, because I don't think we do ourselves any favors by starting the conversation with wives, submit to your own husbands, when we actually have been told before that to submit to one another first. And so a lot of times when we get into this wives submission lesson, we skip the fact that there was a lobby in the room. The lobby to the room was, hey, everyone submit to each other. And then wives submitting to husbands. So if you skip the first part, you run the risk of thinking that Paul is trying to give instruction simply to wives 
or simply to husbands. The truth is it's to the whole Ephesian church, whether they're married or not, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That's the first reason I do it this way. The second reason I do it this way is we don't have punctuation in the Greek. Periods, commas, quote marks, exclamation points, question marks. We don't have those. That's, that's our thing. That's not the Greeks. So Paul's just writing Greek words. We're dropping in periods. We're dropping in commas. And what we don't know, for, and we don't have paragraph breaks in the Greek. Paragraph breaks mean new thought. Almost all of your Bibles do a paragraph break right here. New thought. Wives, submit to your husband. In fact, a lot of your Bibles will even do a reference heading. Marriage. Husbands and wives. Christ and His church. You know, but it never starts here. Because <laughs> that's the middle of a sentence. It always starts here. That doesn't have to be the middle of a sentence. We made that up. That doesn't have to be the beginning of a sentence. We made that up. That doesn't have to be the beginning of a paragraph. We made that up. And so what we have done is because of the way we've laid things out, it helps us to frame our interpretation of Scripture, which may not be what Paul's writing. So I propose that we don't start a new paragraph at wives. Maybe we start the paragraph of submit. Submit to one another in the fear of God. Okay, here's the third reason I do this. This word, submit, is not actually there in the oldest Greek manuscripts. Our oldest Greek says, submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. But as the translations go along, we start to interpolate and drop the word submit in, which comes up later in the text, and we drop it way back there by wives. And so maybe we don't need a new paragraph. Maybe we don't need a sentence break. Maybe we don't need that second submit. Submit to one another in the fear of God, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. And you might say, well, what's the big deal with dropping in submit? Well, I don't know. Maybe the big deal is Paul didn't put it there. For me, that's enough of a reason to go, well, maybe it didn't need to be there because Paul wasn't trying to hammer down on submit to wives as much as he was trying to introduce the topic of submitting to each other in the way that we are brothers and sisters in the same family. Let's use some more illustrations. We start with wives, we'll go to husbands, we'll go to children, we'll go to slaves because that's where five and six are going to go. Maybe I'm making too big of a deal of it. Admittedly, possibly, but if you start that baby with a new paragraph, it's a new paragraph. It stands on its own. It doesn't need the introductory sentence. If it has the introductory sentence, then we have something to work with in which maybe Paul means something else. Okay, with all of that in mind, I'm going to borrow a little David Bentley Hart tonight, all right? I admittedly am quite taken with David Bentley Hart's structuring of the Greek. He does some pretty extensive and good work on Ephesians 5. And so I'm going to use at least two paragraphs tonight in our screens. And I'll read them slowly because I realize we don't zoom in on screens and I don't go home and type all this stuff up for our visual audience. So I'll read it carefully, but I, I always try to give credit where credit is due. This, this next one's not me. All right. David Bentley Hart. The verb here and in the following verses, potasso, and this is where we're talking about submit, okay? So the word for submit or submission. The verb literally means subordinate. But it means it in the sense of either arranging under or of being subordinated to. However, it can also mean being stationed under the shelter of something or someone 
And then he uses the illustration like a horse tethered beneath an awning or simply being assigned to someone. Okay. So that's the, the Greek sense of submit. In the case of wives and husbands, the issue here does not seem to be merely one of domestic authority, which in the first century would have been regarded as a matter of positively banal obviousness. I'll get to that in a second. I like that phrase. Good turn of words. But also one of reciprocal service and protection. So let me, this you can, you can handle on your own. Do with this as you will as far as the Greek understanding of the verb word, what that might mean. He gives you a bunch of ways to work with it. But that last paragraph to me is the money. Because we're dealing in the case of wives and husbands, which I argue, and I think most scholars, commentators will argue that Ephesians 5 is not Paul trying to have a marriage seminar. Gosh, we've had marriage seminars out of Ephesians 5. And, and that's where most people go straight to it, is Ephesians 5. And I think Paul would have scratched his head and went, are you going to have a slavery seminar next? Because that's coming up in chapter 6. And so I think you can already tell where you should take umbrage with the Bible once in a while. Uh, that's coming up. But <laughs> in the case of wives and husbands, it's not just domestic authority. The parenthetical is what grabs me. In the first century, it would have been regarded as a matter of positively banal obviousness to tell a woman that she was in submission to her husband because in the first century, there was no other place to be. Okay, there, it wasn't as if there was a path upward for women. There was zero upward mobility for a woman. A single woman almost invariably either lived at home till she died or became a prostitute. There just wasn't, there, it wasn't like there were jobs for a young single woman trying to make her way in the world, she couldn't move up politically. There wasn't a way for her to have an income. She couldn't own property. She couldn't buy anything other than the essentials to live. And so from a very young age, literally from puberty, she attached herself to a man. And that became her husband. And if she was lucky to have one that wasn't too old, she might be able to have a place for her to grow old. That was the view. And so it would have been incredibly obvious to a first century crowd. It would have been like, why is he even bringing this up that women should submit to their husband if he doesn't mean something else? Okay, if, if there isn't something deeper. Otherwise, Paul's Captain Obvious. Like, you don't even have to tell women this. They're already having to do this. This is, it's kind of a silly thing to say. But what we are going to see is reciprocal service and reciprocal protection. So he mere... There, you can make a pretty solid argument that he's merely setting up a countercultural argument towards men by introducing women first. Because women are sort of the baseline understanding. They know that submission is already part of this experience. Look at, let me, let me, let me, let me focus you on the fact that the verb is subordinate. Okay? Let me show you another tense of that, another expression of that same verb. Now, we're not here yet. We're on our way. Ephesians 6.1, Ephesians 6.5. 6.1, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Same structure in the Greek, instead of submit, gets translated obey. Bond servants, that's a clean word in the New King James. That word should straight up be slaves. You want to translate it correctly. So let's read it that way. Slaves, be obedient, same Greek word here, to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. 
Now notice that our translators don't translate this as be submissive or slaves be submissive. They translate it as obedient. It's because they are using a different verb tense. It's not the same word. In other words, Paul has harsher words for children and slaves in regards to how they treat the, those above them, because they're literally above them, children and slaves, masters and parents, than he does for wives to their husbands. That needs to be brought up, because we are not dealing with the same Greek word when we talk about the relationship of wives and husbands as we are with children and parents and slaves and masters, even though some people like to twist the word submit to mean do whatever he tells you to do. Okay. That would be these words, which are not the same in the Greek. Okay. Or let's say it this way. Paul uses a different word here and translated as obey. Thus, he's not ordering wives to obey. And this is an important line. Nowhere. Does he tell husbands to lead? In fact, there's not a verse in the Bible that tells husbands to lead their wives. Lead, L-E-A-D, we love that. People talk about that. They use that like that's spiritual. It's your job to be the spiritual head of your house. You're supposed to lead. We don't have scripture for that. We don't have scripture of lead because in reality, if the husband is to spiritually lead his wife, she doesn't need to hear from the Holy Spirit. She really only needs to hear from him because how are you going to lead you can't have two masters. Jesus taught us this, right? You can't have two masters. You can't, you can't have two people telling you to do something. One of them is telling you to go this way and the other one is telling you to go that way. So if you live in an environment where husbands lead, they are the ones that hear from God, then there's absolutely no reason at all to support women hearing from God. Like, for what purpose would God speak to a woman? And believe me, there are entire groups of Christianity that fall right into this camp. And they go, you're exactly right. What you're saying right there is right. She doesn't have any reason to listen to to the Holy Spirit. She doesn't have any reason to listen to God. She should be listening to her husband. And that isn't exactly what Paul says at all. He doesn't talk about obedience like children and slaves when he talks about wives. So that led me to this thought. Non-traditional interpretation of the wives submit passage are welcome. And they should be welcome. We ought to be arguing with this baby. We ought to be wrestling this thing out. And here's why. Because if you consider that the sixth chapter can be used to justify an antiquated institution like slavery, and we've grown past it now, and we don't go to Ephesians 6 and go, you know what, man, we ought to have slavery. Because Paul had a whole two verses in there on how slaves ought to treat their masters. Then he had a couple verses on how masters ought to treat their slaves. And if you do that, you go 160 years into the past to the American South, where pastors were getting in their pulpits and preaching Ephesians 6 to justify the institution of slavery. And they go, hey, this is in the Bible. And if, if Paul wanted to teach you how to treat your slaves, then Paul knew God. How could Paul be treat, teaching you how to treat slaves if slavery was wrong? See how you can go down that? So you go, well, how do we get around that? We argue. We go, no, that's impossible that that's God's design is that one human being owned another human being. That the same God who brings the equality of the cross, there's neither male nor female, bond nor free, Jew nor Gentile, turns right around and goes, well, you know, in reality, a um, bunch of you are going to be owned by other people and, you know, suck it up. Do your best. Try your hardest. This is a culturally bound argument of slavery. I'm really doing this tonight so that I don't have to mess with it when we get to Ephesians 6. Because I'm not doing a whole week on why we shouldn't have slavery. That's, that ought to be, 
you don't need a whole week on you don't need 15 18 seconds on hey slavery's a bad idea and you go amen all right let's move on to something else and yet there it is and so it does have to be dealt with so my point is it's okay as far as i'm concerned let's listen to non-traditional interpretations of wives submit to your husband let's try to get down into the context and figure it out because if we're not going to take that argument with that then we're probably not going to take the argument with slavery and we didn't for hundreds of years because we didn't think it was possible that they had a different context than us it's not only possible it's a guarantee it's a guarantee and I realized that the slavery of the Roman Empire was not exactly the slavery of the American South, but it was still one person owning another person. Whether it was voluntary or whether it was in sexual servitude or whether it was to pay off debt or whether you were born into it or whether you were bought and sold, you were still the property of someone else. And so it is okay to argue from the point of context. 523, let's move on just a little bit into this. You start to get into the meat of this, by the way, if you count the words, and I did, and then I didn't write it down, and I don't remember. Um, there are like a third as many words of instructions to wives as there are to husbands in this passage. So if anything, Paul really just uses the wives submit as a way to set up what he really wants to say to men. Because in reality, from a Christian perspective, uh, the women are not the problem. Um, in fact, the first 300 years of church history pretty much confirm that an overwhelming majority of Christians were women. The first three or 400 years of Christianity was predominantly women. And they probably were responsible for keeping the faith alive in the first several hundred years. Um, the position of women was so suppressed, so locked in in society that Paul really has to go after the Christian men the husbands whose very definition of marriage is completely defined by their culture. They have no Christian definition of marriage. They have a Roman definition of marriage. They have a Greek definition of marriage. They have a secular definition of marriage. No one's ever written down a Christian definition of marriage. Jesus wasn't married. So it's not as if Peter, James, and John go, hey, let me, men, we're going to have a marriage conference. Let me tell you how Jesus treated his wife. They don't have that. So what Paul starts to do is go, the church is the wife. John goes along with it. That's the, the story in Revelation. Is, here's the Lamb's bride. So short of having an example of a physical woman that Jesus was married to, because the early church didn't have that. So how do they deal with men whose entire definition of marriage is completely saturated in the culture? And that, to me, is an argument that Christian men need to remember to this day. That our definition of what it means to be a man or to be a husband or to be in a marriage cannot remain defined by the cultural norms of our day, whatever they are, because the definition of it could not be defined by the cultural norms of their day. And so Paul's really making an attempt to do something that's not been done yet. Ephesians 5 is pathbreaking, that you're actually going to sit down with a group of men who from a Greco-Roman perspective only know marriage in one way, their wives completely subordinate to every and completely dependent upon them for everything. Love does not need to enter the equation. I take care of her. I do not have to love her. That, that's the mentality. That, that's my whole role is to keep her alive so she can have children. She'll never leave to go anywhere else because she would die without me. That's the culture. There's nowhere for her to go. 
This is why in many ways the word fornication in the New Testament is almost always prostitution because there was no such thing as casual sex, especially from a female perspective. It was just too dangerous. If you got caught, you're dead. You didn't get caught and get slapped on the hand. You got caught and killed. So it was like there was no hookup culture at all. It just didn't exist. And so if a man wanted to step out, he visited a prostitute. And that's essentially fornication in the New Testament. We always think of these things through our filters. And I'm not saying in any way, in any way trying to justify that. I'm just saying that a lot of our definitions are not their definitions. When you think about marriage, you have to, th- you have to start there. That that's all they had. They didn't have this, they didn't have marriage seminar on what it means to be a, be a husband in the, in the body of Christ. Okay, so husband as head of the wife, we're going to talk about what that means. Christ, head of the church, Christ also savior of the body. Let's look at it from a hierarchy culture standpoint because that is, it is a hierarchical culture. Hierarchy is the context. It's the context of the culture, but it's not the command of Paul. Paul isn't laying out demands for hierarchy. They already have hierarchy. They already have tiered off. Again, it'd be banally obvious for Paul to go in and start listing out the hierarchy. It's there. He's not commanding it to happen. It's what's already happened. Because wives were already forcibly submitted to their husbands. Paul is making a greater countercultural demand to men than women. His words to women were unremarkable. Women are already submitted. Big deal. Tell us to submit to our husbands. We don't, we don't know any other way. The only thing remarkable about him is he's reframing their submission in Christian terms. So he's helping their submission. You're already getting crushed. Instead of looking at it as submitted to a man who may or may not care for you at all, What if you treated your submission as if you were submitting to Christ? Paul's actually giving the women of his era a way to breathe beneath the submission they have no way out of. Okay, this is is the way it's going to be. But what if you could treat it as if you were submitting to Christ? You go, gosh, that's asking a lot. Yeah, it is asking a lot. But if you're already getting crushed... You need relief from being crushed. And there's no path at this time for women's liberation. You could make the argument that there's no path for slaves to be liberated as well. Manumission in Ephesians 6. There's no path for it. So how are we going to deal with it? Well, he does the best he can, which is slaves, submit to your masters as unto the Lord. You know, do the best you can with what you got. I don't like the advice. I mean, I, I want Paul to go, slaves, revolt. You know, go get yours. Jesus set you free. Uh, Paul doesn't do that. And that kept a lot of people for centuries from believing that revolt was the way. They go, well, Paul didn't do it. Maybe we shouldn't do it. So I said this is probably the 15th time I've used this word tonight. Context, context, context. The, con- the cultural context of what Paul's speaking into has to be taken into account. It's absolutely necessary. Let's borrow some David Bentley Hart again. Another great paragraph by DBH. In the world of late antiquity, a household was under the authority of the paterfamilias. Um, Greco-Roman world, paterfamilias, head of the household. This is, the patri- this is where we get the phrase patriarchal. The father head of the house. The, the father was, it literally was, it wasn't just an umbrella. I know we've had this Christian idea of an umbrella 
you know, there's the umbrella of Christ, and then inside of it's the husband. He's got an umbrella over the wife, and then she's got an umbrella over the kids. Throw the umbrellas out. All right? It's not, it's not what Paul... Paul's not giving the umbrella. Speaking into a petrofamilius society, it was more like a pyramid. Everybody beneath the father at the top, you could almost say the pyramid was flipped and dad held everybody up. That was the patrofamilias. But it's also the case that in an unpoliced society, we forget that. Unpoliced. Anything goes. Households were often small fortresses with bolted outer gates. This is still the case on the other side of the world. If you ever go visit most of Asia and you go visit people above middle class, it's bolted gates, houses way off the street. That was typical in the Roman Empire. Wives were often much younger than their husbands. Male labor was the foundation of most of the economy. So here, a husband's reciprocal responsibility to his wife, who is under the shelter of his household, and this is where Paul's being path-breaking, he's telling husbands to lay down their lives for their wives on the model of Christ's self-sacrificial headship. There ain't a man reading that in Ephesians 5 that's excited. Because his culture tells him that being the head of the family, the paterfamilias, he don't lay his life down for anybody. Everybody's laying their life down for me. That's what you're all living in my house for. That's my slaves. That's my wife. That's my kids. I'm the top dog, and everybody else should just be glad they get to eat. And they were. It was a society built on that. And Paul comes in in Ephesians 5 with a wrecking ball. Essentially, to that mentality and goes, Husbands, Treat your wife as if Christ treats his church. How does Christ treat his church? And then if you're a good Christian man, you know exactly how Christ, you know how he treated his enemy. You know how Christ treated those who hated him. And he goes, how would he treat those in whom he loves? And that self-sacrificial laying down is what Paul's demanding in Ephesians 5. And it is path-breaking. It is world-changing because it hasn't ever been done this way before. This is why it's best to start this thing with submit to one another, not just wives submit to your husbands. Because Paul's not trying to, he's not being subversive in the fact that he's sneaking this in on men. He means it from the very beginning. You're going to have to submit to each other in the same way that we submit to Christ. And what would that look like? Now, uh, go back to Ephesians 5, 23. I think it's the next screen. Yeah, watch these two together. We already read 23. We're going to read 23 and 24. The husband's head of the wife. As also Christ is head of the church. That's Paul's point, by the way, is that Christ is head of the church. And he's savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. So watch how he pulls this off in 24. Therefore, previous material, right? In light of the fact that Christ is head of the church and by being head, he saves his body. The head saves the body. It's the head that takes care of the body. It's not just the other way around. So that he saves the body. Therefore, in light of that, in the way that the church is subject to Christ, let wives be subject to their husbands and everything. Okay, well, how's the church subject to Christ? That becomes the basis of Paul's argument. Now, wives were already submissive to their husbands, but they were submissive to their husbands in a world in which they had no other choice. So Paul's not saying to us that we are to be submissive to Christ because we have no other choice. But he's he's showing all of us that submission to Christ comes from a place of the heart. He's also used the phrase head, which is not the first time he's used this. This is the only real danger 
in doing Bible study the way we're doing it, where we do three verses one night and six verses seven days later, and then seven days later we do four more verses, and then, I mean, we're in the 25th lesson, and we're in the fifth chapter. It's been a while. You're supposed to read Ephesians in one setting. I mean, when you sit down to read Ephesians, it takes like 20 minutes, maybe. You're supposed to do the whole thing right there. It's a letter. You don't get a letter from a friend. You don't get an email from a friend, spread it out over 28 weeks. You know, it's only, it's only six pages long. I'm going to take 28 weeks to read this, really dissect it. I get it. We have to. And there's so much going on that it's really the only way to do it right. If we really wanted to do this right, and I wanted to bore everyone to death, every week we'd read the entire letter to the Ephesians. We'd stand up and go, okay, I know we read this last week, but we're going to read it again, and we're going to do it out loud. Because that's how it was written, to be read out loud in a culture where people learned by listening. So I want all of you to listen, and I'm going to read Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And if we did that, something would happen. Well, first of all, not very many people would watch. But the thing that would happen to those who did watch is that you would slowly start to memorize it. Like you might not get every word, but you'd get the cadences. And you'd also pick up on the fact that some things surface in the beginning that then vanish and then resurface later. And then you realize that what you're reading here at the end isn't standing alone. It feels like it is because we're on lesson 25. feels like it's the first time I've ever seen this. But if you had the whole thing, you'd realize that he's already laid this out. So think about the fact that the husband is the head of the wife. And then rewind to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul says this. We will all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We're heading into becoming a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is the destiny of the church. This is where we're going. We're on this road. 15. But speaking the truth in love, may we grow up in all things into him who is the head. Christ, out of which the whole body's joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. And that causes the whole body to grow for edifying itself in love. So Paul's already constructed the body of the church. And he said what the fivefold ministry, that was apostles and pastors, that what that's supposed to be doing is building the body to meet the head. I don't know how we illustrated that when we did it. But in the past, I've, I've looked, presented it as Christ is at the top and the body is simply growing. I heard one scholar once say this, and I always thought it was clever. The body of Christ is supposed to grow to support the head. That it, it actually, is, imagine it growing up into where the head of Christ fits the body we've built. You know, like putting uh, like artificial, CGIing a head onto a body and you can tell that that face doesn't belong on that body you know the body's too nice for that face or, or vice versa whatever so the body's developing into what the, that head that christ looks like and it's reciprocal the head is fill first three chapters the head is filling us with the treasure chest of heaven making us set with him in heavenly places Saving us by grace. And then we're growing up into that, meeting, meeting that into a unity is how that happens. And so take, take some of those phrases and do it the, say it the Paul White way. This is how I would say it. And I, I put quotes around some of the stuff that, that appears in those verses we just read. The perfect man. 
grows up into or is joined in unity to the head, which is Christ. And out of Christ, the whole body is joined and knit together. Every part does its share. That means that Paul's instructions to husbands and wives are simply an extended illustration of what he already laid out in chapter 4. He already started the argument in 4. He's just fulfilling it in 5. And the argument is Christ is the head, we're the body, we're married to Him, and we need to reflect the unity of our marriage to Christ in our natural marriage so we can actually tweak our natural marriages in the way that the Holy Spirit is tweaking us into Christ. As He's growing us into Christ, we can, we can take those expressions and implant them into our marriages. That's why our marriages have every opportunity to be as healthy as our spirit man. Sometimes I wonder if that's the problem in a lot of our marriages, is that our spirit man is so disjointed from the head to the point of spiritual decapitation that he's just sort of out here doing his thing, completely disconnected from the head that is Christ. And then we wonder why all of our earthly relationships are just absolute, utter rubbish and chaos. Because we're not putting, and this isn't meant to condemn, I, I'm not doing any more than Paul did. We're not putting any effort into growing the body to meet the head. How are we going to fix any of the stuff going on in our lives with relationships, in, in regard to relationships? And that's really all Paul's trying to do in Ephesians 5. I do believe he is actually trying to speak to husbands and wives. But he's doing it almost in a backdoor way. Like by, by explaining that the body of Christ is the body of Christ connected and unified to who Christ is. And that if we would get that relationship right, then we could work on the marriage relationship because it could be a reflection of what we're already doing with the Father. Um, I know that people's marriages work out without Christ. I just can't figure out how. I'm just being really honest. When people that don't pray and they don't have a Christian family and they don't know how to listen to the Holy Spirit. I know there are marriages out there that last a long time. I'm, not also, I'm also not sure that lasting is evidence of healthy marriages. Some people are just too poor to get divorced or too lazy or just don't care enough. Or they're like, you know, my life's okay and that's just, who cares? I mean, we just don't talk to each other, but we're still married. Um, so I don't think longevity is a sign of a healthy relationship. It, it, it's certainly there are worse metrics, but it's not the only one. Um, so I, I'm just being honest. I don't know how people without Christ have healthy marriages or healthy relationships because only in growing in the grace of knowing who I am in Christ do I get honest with me. And if I'm, gonna get, if I'm not going to get honest with me, then I'm going to bring that version of the lie to my wife. And then she's going to have to deal with that version of the lie. That becomes what she's married to. And so if I'm not going to do that with Christ, why in the world would I do that with her? I mean... Wouldn't that make sense? This is why I encourage you, if you're looking for a spouse, work on the relationship you have with Christ. Start there. As that begins to bring the body towards the head, to use Paul's illustration, um, you start to get an honest assessment of who you are, and only then we, maybe you'll get an honest assessment of what you want. And then, and really you owe it to somebody anyway. If you're going to love someone and give them your life and, and receive theirs in return, you owe, you owe honesty, if nothing else. Um, I do believe that Christ, 
and this is a very this is a very sort of precarious way to say this. God knows all, but because God is in a relationship with us through Christ, you don't force things on the people you're in a relationship with, and therefore you don't force things out of them. And so I very much believe in the finished work of Christ in regards to the judicial righteousness of every person watching and in this room. But I also very much believe that you haven't let go of stuff. So you're judicially declared innocent, and yet you got problems. So which one is it? Well, you're innocent with problems. I mean, he's not, he's not counting you guilty, but he wants to go to work. But have you noticed that he won't just go to work? Because we're always, a lot of us in grace circles are like, well, whatever's in there, Lord, just take it out. It doesn't work that way. Whatever's in there, Lord, just take it out. And he won't do that without your permission. Like he won't just rip it out of there. You just, hmm. You just think differently all of a sudden. So there's a participation because that's what relationship is. And so we are growing into this as we become expressions as we become the perfect man, we grow up in, join in a unity with Christ. So husbands and wives, just an extended illustration of that. Let's read on just a little bit more and we get into this Christ section as we start to head to the end. By the way, we're not finishing Ephesians 5 tonight because I, would, I, don't, I didn't want to. Because I got the one flesh passage coming up and I ain't got that kind of time. Because he goes, two join to one and make one flesh. This is the mystery. Well, I want the whole week next week for the mystery because that's a big one. And that, that pulls us all the way back from the garden. And no one has that kind of time to do all these in one night. So we're heading to the end with this stuff. Hus husbands love your wives. Same way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. In other words, love requires sacrifice. Love your wives. Give yourself for her. You don't love something you don't sacrifice for. You only love it in word. You don't love it in deed. If you love in deed, you'll always sacrifice. You won't even have, most of the time, you won't even have to think about it. You just do it because you love them. Sacrifice comes natural for what you love. By the way, culturally... This is brand new territory for husbands in the first century. Why do I need to love her? I'm taking care of her. I'm feeding her. She's got a house. She'd be dead without me. <laughs> Who said I had to love her? That's, that's what he's dealing with. That's what he's up against. And they're Christians. But they, all they can think of is secular. They don't have a, a guide. So, so Paul's laying it out going, hey, you want to know what real love looks like? You're going to lay yourself down for and here's why Christ does it, so he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. This 26th verse is how we know that Paul's end game is really Jesus, not men. Because men were not sanctifying our wives by the washing of the word. Christ is sanctifying the church by the washing of the word. And he's actually using an Old Testament story. I got a bunch of verses from Ezekiel, but I only want to use one, Brian. It'll be the first one. Back in Ezekiel 16, God tells a story through the prophet Ezekiel of Jerusalem, how when he first found her, she was like a little kid. She's, she's sort of covered in birth blood. It's kind of a weird illustration. You can read it on your own. Um, and then she grows up and she becomes a woman. And there's even a pretty visual illustration of her literally becoming a woman in Ezekiel 16. And I'll let you read that on your own as well. And then God comes along in the middle of the chapter and says this in Ezekiel 16, 9. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth, gave you sandals of badger skin, clothed you in fine linen. Now, I'm only reading for you 9 and 10. This goes all the way to 14 of him telling what he does for Jerusalem, how he cleans her up. But when Paul says Jesus washes his church with the water of the word, Jews would have seen that. That's a very, that was a, 
a, a, a popular statement that when God fell in love with Jerusalem, he had to wash her off of what she used to be. So Paul goes, Jesus is doing that and washing us off. So go to my paragraph. You skip those verses. Jesus speaks over his church to clean her. His words purify, therefore hear him. Listen for Christ. Husbands are encouraged to do this over their wives. Not as an exclusive command to husbands. Please understand. It's not just men do this over your wives. Because we're all submitting to each other. This shows us the power of what we say to those we claim to love. So you claim to love somebody, what you say to them carries weight. And, and we need to know it. And here's what it looks like from a Jesus perspective. Remember this? Peter goes, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have part in me. Oh, Lord, wash, go ahead and wash my hands and my head. Watch Jesus' statement in John 3, 13, 10. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. He's completely clean. You're clean, but not all of you. That's a Judas Iscariot statement. You're already clean. That's why I'm washing your feet. How were they cleaned? John 15, 3. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken. So Jesus cleans the disciples off by talking about them, talking to them, talking over them. This is why when we come into church, the role of ministry is to wash people off. So you better be careful how you preach. You better be careful how you teach. Because you are washing people with your words or you're wounding and hurting them. Binding them. Pouring onto them guilt, shame, fear. You have a responsibility to present the gospel. The gospel washes us off. Two to close. Ephesians 5, 27. Jesus does this so He can present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Uh, this is a past tense verse. This is not an eschatological promise of the rapture. I've heard this one get quoted with bad eschatology. You know, Jesus is coming back after a glorious church without spot and without wrinkle. And that's what they would say to get you to try to live right or get up here and get repentance because they go you guys got to clean yourselves up the previous verse told you that he cleans you by washing you with his word you don't clean you by purging yourself so that you can someday go to be with jesus he is presenting us glorious we don't have a spot we don't have a wrinkle we're holy we're without blemish and to the jews it sounded like this song of solomon chapter 4 verse 7 this is a speech to his lover you are all fair my love there's no spot in you that's Christ with His church. So be careful what you say. All right, so we talk marriage. We don't really have a lot. Paul didn't really have a lot to say in relation to it without Christ. This is the stunner. The best marriage chapter in the New Testament is not Ephesians 5. It's probably 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul actually tells husbands and wives why they should stay together if they're believers, and he lays that bomb on them that still gets trips up preachers to this day when he goes, believer, if you're with someone who's not a believer, stay with them. You sanctify them. And uh, in other words, well, you're more powerful than they are. Um, so believe it. Um, so I don't, I don't take Ephesians 5 as, as some core text for what marriage should look like. I take it as the definition of what our marriage to Christ looks like. And if we could get that right, it would wash over into and, and move over into our relationships. But it is very contextually bound. 
for its time and its place. Next week, we'll, we'll try to close the fifth chapter, and we'll do so with that one flesh mega mystery. There's a Greek word there for mega. There's a mega mystery that Paul tries to reveal um, at the end of the fifth chapter. I want to pray tonight, and I want to pray for people who are watching as well, because this is one that somebody might have... I mean, I, I know how this works. Somebody needs some help, having trouble in their marriage. They go online. They trust a preacher. They go, I wonder if you've done any sermons on marriage. They literally put like my name and the word marriage in, and this is one of the messages that are going to come up. And yes, in the first five minutes, I'm going, you know, it's not really a marriage sermon about you and your spouse. It's about you and Jesus. But for those who watch looking for Christ, knowing that the answer always starts with Christ, I hope that there's been some things in there that's just seeds that'll go to work. That's who I want to pray for. All right. Father, thank you. For those who may not even at the time of this recording even know about it, about us or, or this word, but someday they're going to come looking for a sermon. And I know because this has happened more times than I can count, messages that are long forgotten end up being the freshest word for somebody somewhere. So I'm praying in advance that, Father, this find the person it need to find and that all of us who have been in on it, sat through it, learn something about our relationship with Christ so that we can learn something about our relationship with each other. And we thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.